This is Guns and Butter. So you see that these these people, it's not several factions. It's not different. It's not competing mafias out there. It's not competing gangs out there committing these various crimes. It looks like it's one big gang committing the really big crimes. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Christopher Bolin. Today's show, exposing the 9/11 deception. Christopher Boleyn is an independent researcher, investigative journalist, and author. He spent three years traveling extensively throughout Europe and the Middle East, finally settling in both a kibbutz in Israel and in Norway, where he studied Egyptian, Biblical Hebrew, and Norwegian at the University of Oslo. He is a graduate of the University of California in history with an emphasis on Israel-Palestine. Along with research and writing, he has worked as an editor and translator. His travels and studies of German, Spanish, Norwegian, Swedish, Hebrew, and Arabic languages have helped him analyze international politics and events. He is the author of Solving 9-11, The Deception That Changed the World, and Solving 9-11, The Articles. His newest book, out on September 11, 2019, is Solving 9-11, The Articles, Volume 2. Christopher Bolin, welcome again. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Christopher, you have been researching the crimes of September 11th since the day of, that is, for 18 years. You've done a lot of on-the-ground research, personally investigated companies and people. Your investigation has not in any way been simply an armchair investigation. You've gone to primary sources. I understand that you actually happened to be in New York City on September 11th. What was your experience that day, and what led you to be on the trail of the perpetrators all this long time? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good question, because um, I was an investigative journalist um, professionally when 9-11 happened. Um, I was working for a weekly newspaper in Washington, D.C., and um, investigating government cover-ups of, of catastrophes like 9-11 um, had become uh, a specialty of mine. I had studied the Middle East. Uh, I have a degree from University of California, Santa Cruz in history, with my emphasis on Palestine and Israel. And um, in the years prior to 9-11, I had done uh, a lot of research into catastrophes like 9-11. Many had happened. We had, had Waco in 1993. We had the Estonia sinking in 1994, Oklahoma City bombing in 95. Flight 800 in 1996, but two of those I was particularly engaged in. The sinking of the Estonia ship in 1994, um, which lost a thousand lives. Um, this, this was a ship that sank in late September 1994, and the cover story was that it was a monster wave had broken open the, the front of the ship and led to the, the sinking of the ship, when there is evidence of a hole in the hull caused by explosives. Uh, and the second one was Flight 800 in 1996. Um, I covered that, and I covered the final hearings in, in the year 2000, in August, I think it was, in which um, the NTSB said that the plane had exploded due to a, a, a spark in the central fuel tank when there were 100 eyewitnesses who testified seeing a missile-like object rise from the surface of the sea 
and go up to the plane and strike the plane, and, and it blew up. Yet in, in that final hearing at NTSB in um, the summer of 2000, the NTSB categorically dismissed all eyewitness testimony as being unreliable. So when 9-11 happened a year later, um, and I saw the same, the same pattern of, of deception being rolled out, primarily I saw a, a false narrative being given to the people in which the story did not match the eyewitness accounts or the testimonies of people who were on the scene. Now, you were in New York City actually on the day. What happened mm-hmm. there? Well, we were. Uh, I was actually passing through New York City on my way back to Washington, D.C. We had been up in Vermont um, over the weekend, and we got a late start coming down. So we were, we were driving down through Connecticut and around New York City on the Jersey side, um, you know, at past midnight. And it was, it was about 2 o'clock in the morning that we were passing the World Trade Center, 2 a.m., and the World Trade Center was on my left. And my wife, to keep me awake while I was driving, was telling me this, this uh, story she had, this dream that she had um, the day that we left home and started our road trip to Washington. So it was about a week before, in which planes were flying and attacking us and, and, and coming down and hitting the road in front of us and, and then coming out behind us and planes were attacking us from all sides. It was a very odd dream. And we finally found a hotel in Maryland, um, just inside the border there, and we all went to bed at 3 o'clock in the morning. And at 8.45 in the morning, I got up and I saw the, uh, the news on TV that a plane had hit the World Trade Center North Tower. And uh, then we watched the, the events occur in South Tower and, and Pentagon. And I, I called Washington. I said, I can't, I can't come to Washington because of the, the attacks. And uh, they hadn't heard of the attack, actually. They, they hadn't had the radio or TV on, so they didn't know about it. Um, and, and so I, I started driving. We started, started driving my family back to Chicago across the small roads of Pennsylvania. And as I, as I listened to the... Uh, reports on the radio by midday already on 9-11 we knew that the official story was going to blame arabs and um that that five middle eastern men had been seen celebrating the attacks at the world trade center and uh and that there was certainly an involvement of of israel in the middle east in this in this whole thing could you talk about what you have discovered about the cleanup of Ground Zero at the World Trade Center? You've written that there were four companies contracted to do the work, only one of which was an American company. Who was responsible for handing out these contracts, the bulk of which were given to foreign companies? Well, the the um, World Trade Center site was divided into four sections. Um and the, the, the North Tower was given to a company called AMEC, A-M-E-C, which is a very big British company that's uh, heavily involved in oil extraction. Um, the other company that got the South Tower was another British company called Bovis, Bovis Lendlease. Um, the the uh, World Trade Center 7 building at the top in the north was given to Turner Construction, which is a German-owned company. And only the eastern part of the of the uh, area was given to uh, Tully Construction from Flushing, New York, from Queens. So that what you had is that the 
three major crime scenes. Uh, that's North Tower, South Tower, and Building 7. Those were each in the hands of foreign construction companies, foreign project managers, who oversaw the removal of rubble from each from those areas. Um, a little bit later, after 9-11, um, Bovis Lendlease was given the uh, position as being the head company in charge of the whole thing. And uh, they, they, they oversaw the entire project. But as I said, foreign companies oversaw the removal of the rubble. And this is important because the destruction of the rubble from the World Trade Center is, in fact, a crime. It was a crime scene. Um, it was a crime scene of mass murder. 3,000 people, about 3,000 people lost their lives there. And um, the evidence of the crime scene was being uh, destroyed 24-7 without giving proper examination to determine what caused the buildings to fall. So here we are 18 years later, and there's still questions about what made the buildings fall. What about the hot spots underneath the pile at the World Trade Center that burned for at least three months? What was the nature of these fires? That's a very good question, because that gets to um, the uh, public health question that, that is uh, affecting New York City. We have something like 30,000 sick people in New York um, from their exposure to the smoke and the dust from the World Trade Center. Now, what happened is that we know the pile was very hot. Um, that was obvious. It was smoking for three months, at least three months, until Christmas of 2001. And the people that worked on the pile, they talk about having having to change shoes like three or four times a day because their shoes were melting. The soles of the shoes were melting. What happened was that when they got down to the bottom of the pile, when they, when they, when they got down to the bedrock of Manhattan, they found molten iron in the molten state. And this is three and four or five weeks after the event. So what, what caused these hot spots is not precisely known. Whether it was a thermite reaction of uh, cooking off or whether it was something else, at the sub-level sub -level of all three towers that fell that day, there were these extremely hot spots that were hotter than the boiling temperature of, of aerosols found in the smoke. For example, iron or any of these elements that were found in the smoke. We know this because UC Davis, uh, a, a group called the Delta Group at UC Davis, sent what's called a, a Davis drum, which was on the roof um, just north of the World Trade Center. And when the smoke blew through that drum, they could analyze the particles in the smoke. And what they found was an unprecedented number of nano-sized particles. And I asked um, Thomas Cahill, who was in charge of the project, I said, what could explain all these nanoparticles in the smoke? And he said, only temperatures hotter than the boiling point of the metal involved. So that meant that underneath the World Trade Center towers, you had boiling iron, pits of, of boiling chemicals, boiling elements. And, and so elements were being vaporized and turned into, into smoke. And why this is so dangerous is because these extremely small nanoparticles in the smoke, when they're inhaled by a firefighter or somebody working on the pile, they, they are so small that they, the, the normal barriers in the body do not stop them. And so they, they migrate all the way into the nucleus of the human cell where they cause cancer. And this is, what, this is the, the most likely source of, of the, the thousands of people who have cancer in New York City because of their exposure. Um, the dust exposure was short, 
a lot of people were exposed to the dust, but that was only for a matter of a day or so. But the fires, as I said, these hot spots lingered for months until basically Christmas. So a lot more people were exposed to the smoke, and the smoke with the nanoparticles um, will cause cancer. So then is this what's considered the particle effect, these nano-sized uh, pieces of whatever it was? Precisely. It's the particle effect. And I learned about it from a, from a scientist at Livermore Lab, retired scientist named Marion Falk. And I had, I had learned about this um, particle effect in correlation to the um, use of depleted uranium weapons. It's the same thing. When depleted uranium weapons hit an object, about half of the mass of the warhead, the uranium warhead, turns into smoke, into dust in the air and, and contaminates the, the field and, and people around it. So it's the same, same thing. And no matter what material we're talking about, whether you're talking about Teflon or iron or, or depleted uranium, when it's reduced to that extremely small size, the particle effect um, will, will affect the health of anybody who is exposed to that smoke. That's why it's such a big question, a big issue in New York City, because as I said, I just read that there's something like 21,000 non-first responders who are, are sick with 9-11 uh, illness. I think 5,000 of them or 4,000 of them have cancer. There are 10,000 first responders who are ill, and 241 uh, New York Police Department personnel have died after 9-11, and more than 200 firefighters have died after 9-11, due, just due to the exposure of this smoke and dust. There has been speculation for years now that there may have been some sort of nuclear event at the World Trade Center. I believe that the U.S. Geological Survey did discover some sort of nuclear footprint there. Um, I believe you did look into this. Who did you talk to about this? Well, I turned to Marion Falk, um, who had worked on the Manhattan Project and all the nuclear projects of, since the Manhattan Project, all the way up through Star Wars under the Reagan administration. And I asked him if he thought, um, because a lot of the nuclear speculation goes something like this, that they, they say that a, a nuclear device was, was buried or put in the basement of the World Trade Center and that it, it, it uh, was exploded and then somehow it's, it funneled up to the top and then destroyed from the top down. I mean, because we, we all saw the World Trade Center being destroyed from the top down. At least the North Tower and South Tower fell from the top down. They were, they were being demolished from the top down. And I asked Marion Falk, I said, do you, does, do you see any indication that this was a nuclear event? And he, he said no. Um, he said that nuclear, nuclear explosions tend to grow and, and increase in the crescendo. They grow and grow and grow. Um, and like what we saw from the North Tower and South Tower looks, looks not to be a nuclear device being used. Looks like detonations being put off from the top down. Um, the columns were cut, obviously. The, the core columns were cut. But there were, there, were, there were massive explosions in the basement before the towers were hit. We know that from William Rodriguez in the North Tower. Now, there is always a possibility that um, the, the culprits could have used, uh, put, attached nuclear materials onto conventional weapons, or conventional explosives, creating a, a dirty bomb. And the dirty bomb then would have left the traces that were detected. 
but I don't know. We, we, we can't be sure. But as Marion Falk told me, it did not look like a nuclear event. I'm speaking with investigative journalist and author Christopher Boleyn. Today's show, Exposing the 9-11 Deception. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. And Marion Falk, of course, is with what, the, uh, the uh, Lawrence Livermore Lab? He was with the yeah Department of Energy and Lawrence Livermore Lab, um, and as I said, he was one of the original scientists with the uh, Manhattan Project, so he knew these people, you know Oppenheimer. He worked with those people, and all the way through um, to the, the uh, Ronald Reagan Star Wars project. So he worked on all that stuff, and he he was one of the guys that made the stuff work, and he wanted to share his experience. He wanted to share his knowledge of the dangers of nuclear materials um, to the public because he had, he had, this has been his life and, and he, he was worried about tritium releases at Livermore. And he told me, one of the things he told me is that there's no safe dosage of, of radiation, which is what I tell people at the airport when I go there and they want me to walk through those machines, those back scanner machines, what have you, those scanning machines. I said, there's, there's no safe level of radiation. You've said that there was a final load of debris hauled out of Ground Zero in July of 2002 uh, in mysterious circumstances. What have you discovered about this final big truckload? Yes. A truck driver contacted me, um, and he had worked for Logano Logano Trucking uh, from Connecticut. And this trucking company had been involved in uh, removing some of the debris from the World Trade Center and taking it wherever they took it. Um, in this case, he said, this was a very odd load he wanted to tell me about. And it was July 2002. It was at the end of the cleanup. And he said that uh, a truck driver named Gambarelli had been asked to bring a, a very large 50 cubic meter uh, hazardous materials truck, carry a load of 50 cubic meters, 50 cubic yards, and um, an executive from the company, a young woman who was about at that time, I think about 21, who was uh, went with the with the truck driver from Connecticut to get this load. So they went down to New York City, stayed overnight in New York City, and the next morning they got this what they call a live load, and it was from the World Trade Center, and they took it um, not to New Jersey, not to the usual hazardous waste material sites like um, in Trenton, New Jersey. Rather, they took this to Niagara Falls, uh, to a place called Model City, where there's a there's a weapons or there's a, a hazardous disposal site that's been used by the U.S. government since uh, Manhattan Project. So its its original its original ingredients contents came from that that bomb making project in the 1940s, and there this material whatever was in the was in the load would have been encased in some sort of cell or maybe mixed with concrete and put into a, a, a slot in this, in this uh, disposal site. Now, I, I tried to contact this. I was, I was very interested in what this might have been because it may have been, um, it may have been molten, solidified molten metal because, as I said, there were pools of, pools of molten iron at the base of all three towers. Or it might have been something else. And why did they why did they choose to dis- dispose of it in a hazardous material site if it wasn't necessarily hazardous? It may have been a way to get it away from prying eyes, to get this this evidence 
that they had to get rid of um, disposed of without anybody being able to view it or photograph it or ask, what is that? You know, because there, there were some odd things that were, you know, like this, they call the thing a meteor. There's like a meteorite they, they, they were, where all these items are fused together. Um, but this, we don't see any indication. We have not seen any evidence of these pools of molten metal. The engineers that worked there, they all saw them. The, the people who were involved in removing the rubble, they talked about them, but we haven't seen them. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that maybe, that maybe that's what they took up to the Niagara Falls. I tried and tried to get the uh, people, the truck driver and the woman, to speak about what they did that day, but to no success. Uh, the woman, you know, would not come to the phone, even though she works, still works in that, in that field, and that, still works for the same company, actually. It's changed names a couple times. Um, so I turned over, eventually, last March, I turned over all the information to uh, Richard Gage and the, the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Truth because I thought they should at least have this material. Whether they do something with it or not, I don't know, because it, it would require an investigation that could involve unearthing what the material, you know, to find out what the material really is. And uh, with regard to this hazardous waste disposal site near Niagara Falls, is that anywhere near uh, what people call Love Canal? Yes, yes. It's just north of Love Canal. I think it's called CWMC. Um, I don't really know what CWMC stands for, but it's something like chemical. But it's, it's, a, it's a disposal site that's been there for a long time, and it, that whole area up there, Love Canal and, and the Niagara Falls area, has some some very toxic uh, waste sites. And this one is by a place called Model City. And to think of the beautiful Niagara Falls, and this is where they put toxic mm-hmm. waste? I know. Can you believe it? Can you, it's just awful. The Jeffrey Epstein arrest and death has dominated the news for quite some time now. Have you discovered any connections uh, between the criminal network associated with Jeffrey Epstein and possible organized crime networks that may have been involved in the attacks of 9-11? Are there any persons who appear to have been involved both with Jeffrey Epstein and with the events of September 11th? Yes, that's a good question. There's there's uh, one obvious character who strikes uh, strikes out, and and that is um, Ehud Barak, the former prime minister of Israel. He was photographed um, leaving Jeffrey Epstein's uh, mansion in New York City, uh, and that was carried in the, in the British press. I don't know if it was, it was in the American press, but it was a uh, it was shown around the world. This uh, former Israeli uh, prime minister. Going into the place, going into the house, and coming out of the house, um, you know, trying to conceal his identity by pulling a, a collar up uh, to cover his face. And and then the Epstein case also has a a, a group called Mega involved in it. Uh, particularly with Jeffrey Epstein, there's a guy named uh, Les Vexner. Vexner, I think it is his name. He's the guy that owns the Victoria's Secrets, what have you. And and he is a uh, a Jewish billionaire who's a Zionist, who is a member of a group called Mega. And this is a group of, I don't know, a dozen or so wealthy Jewish billionaires, like the Bronfmans and Les Vexner and um, uh, Ronald Lauder. And Ronald Lauder is a, is a second person who obviously is connected to both 9-11 
in that he was the one who oversaw the privatization of the World Trade Center and other things. Um, and so you have Ehud Barak and, and Ronald Lauder being connected to both Jeffrey Epstein and to 9-11. And uh, so that, that it, it indicates that what, we're, what we might be dealing with here is that the, the Epstein operation is the method they use to control politicians and people of influence. And 9-11 is the cost of, of having those politicians influenced in this way. Now, Ronald Lauder that you've mentioned, of course, is the uh, billionaire heir to the S.D. Lauder cosmetics fortune. I never heard that he had had anything to do with the privatization of the World Trade Center. What was his role there? Oh, yes, yes. He was the director of New York State's privatization program in the 1990s, um, in the late 90s, and also with another privatization program that was being run by Governor Pataki. There were two of them. He was in charge of both of them. And, and what Lauder did is that he decided that they would privatize the World Trade Center and they would privatize Stewart Airport and all these, all these properties that, that were privatized. Now, the privatization of the World Trade Center, of course, was essential to the to the plot. So they wanted to privatize it so that it became public property turned into private property. And the private property needed to fall into specific people's hands and it wound up falling in the hands of Larry Silverstein. And the rest is, is history. But the thing is, is that Ronald Lauder was in charge of this operation to privatize these buildings and, and the other properties. He was also, he's, he, he also has a school in Israel uh, at the Israeli a university which is called IDC, Interdisciplinary Center, um, in Herzliya, which I, I call Mossad University because it's run by the former heads of the Mossad and it's it's in the town of the Mossad and, and it's all based on strategy and diplomacy, what have you. And the thing is, is that there, Ronald Lauder has a school of strategy and government diplomacy, I think it's called. It's the Lauder School. And one of the people who worked at the Lauder School until recently was a, uh, a very high-level general uh, who is known as uh, Danny Rothschild, Rothschild. And he's an Israeli Rothschild from the Rothschild family, apparently. And he was the uh, head of uh, the, the strategy, Department of Strategy and whatnot. But this, this, brings this, this brings this whole thing, you know, a lot closer to uh, what, I cons- what I contend is the point of origin. The point of origin of the 9-11 plot and the war on terror as I say in my book, The War on Terror, The Plot to Rule the Middle East, is Israeli military intelligence. And so people like Ronald Lauder are used by Israeli military intelligence to do their bidding um, in the United States and elsewhere, um, and they do so. And it's important to understand that this mega group was formed in 1991. 1991 was a very you know, crucial year, of course. The United States had invaded Iraq. Then they, then George Herbert Walker Bush was calling for a conference in Madrid, a peace conference, to hammer out the issues between the Palestinians and the Israelis. Um, Bush had a very bad relationship, of course, with uh, Yitzhak Shamir, who was the prime minister at the time. And this is when Yitzhak Shamir created Mega. He created this Mega group of these, as I said, you know, Jewish billionaires who were very sympathetic and, and supportive of Israel. And Mega group is the group behind Epstein. 
So you see that these these people, it's not it, it's not it's not several factions. It's not different. It's not competing mafias out there. It's not competing gangs out there committing these various crimes. It looks like it's one big gang committing the really big crimes. And as I said, it's it, it involves people like Louder and Yitzhak Shamir. Well, now, how could the state of New York justify setting up privatization schemes? What was the rationale to start privatizing things? The government was doing this, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, that's that was what they were doing in the 90s, right? A lot of that. Privatization was one way of stealing from the taxpayer, too, I guess, because, the, 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 you know, although the Rockefellers built the, these towers, the North Tower and South Tower, the Twin Towers, I don't know how much public money was invested in them, um, but I'm sure quite a bit. And they were, they were, they are, they were the possessions of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, as are the airports and the ports and the harbors, what have you, and the underground. So, you know, that means that they were, in essence, publicly owned properties. And this, uh, you know, privatizing things was what what they were doing, of course, in the Soviet Union as well, in the former Soviet Union and, and Eastern Europe. They were privatizing the whole the whole thing, and and everything was up for sale, and they were doing the similar things in New York City. So that you had in New York State, they had they they privatized Stewart um, Airport, and they they privatized the World Trade Center, and they privatized a lot of things. It's one way for a, a government to bring in a lot of money, isn't it? And Christopher, you also mentioned Ehud Barak. Didn't he go on uh, British television within minutes of the attacks of September 11th and uh, name the perpetrators? I'm speaking with investigative journalist and author Christopher Boleyn. Today's show, Exposing the 9-11 Deception. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Yes, Ehud Barak appeared on BBC World Television um, shortly after the attacks on the World Trade Center. Um, it may have been after the one tower had collapsed or even both towers had collapsed, but the third tower had not collapsed. The Building 7 had not fallen. It, it looks like it was about noon, and he was on TV speaking to the largest you know, English broadcasting television network in the world. And he was, he was basically saying that um, the world will never be the same from today on. He blamed Osama bin Laden. He basically said, well, we know who's behind this, and we know where he, where he is. He said, now is the time for the United States to lead a global war, an operational, concrete global war on terror. And then he went from the studios of BBC, he went to Sky, which was owned by Rupert Murdoch, and said the same thing, basically, that it's now time to start the war on terror. So what 9-11 was meant to be and was, it was the spark plug, it was the ignition for the war on terror, which was, which is an Israeli strategy that had been planned since the late 1970s and promoted by Benjamin Netanyahu and other people. And here was the, here was the chance for them to make this war on terror real. The war on terror isn't really a war on terror. It's a war on, on enemies of Israel. Um, so the first co- countries that were affected after Afghanistan were, of course, Iraq and Syria, because this is part of the plan to fragment these countries and to um, re- remove, destroy their, their central military and reduce them into countries that are broken up and fragmented 
like the former Yugoslavia. Now, you are referring, aren't you, to the Oded Yenon Plan? Yes, exactly. The Yenon Plan was written in 1982 by a strategist, a, a Likud strategist, uh, working under Ariel Sharon. And the, the plan, the Yenon Plan, calls for the breaking up of all the Arab states and reducing them to uh, uh, enclaves. Uh, ethnic or religious enclaves. So breaking countries up along their ethnic or their religious lines, exactly what we've done in Iraq and Syria. Syria has been now fragmented into many pieces, and same thing with, with Iraq. So um, what we're seeing is implementation of this Yenon plan by the U.S. military. The University of Alaska Fairbanks study on the collapse of World Trade Center 7, the 47-story tower that fell at uh, 5.20 p.m. on 9-11, has just been released, at least in part. What are its findings, and what do we know about this study? Yeah, this is a very important study because it's, it's taken a while. It was financed by, funded by, Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth. Um, and it was, an, it was uh, the University of Alaska in Fairbanks. Um, Leroy Halsey was the, is the chief researcher. And what they found after four years of study and doing simulations and testings and what have you, they found that fire, fire did not cause the collapse of building number seven. That's the 47-story tower building that fell at 520 in the afternoon owned by Larry Silverstein. Rather, it was a global failure involving near simultaneous failure of every column in the building. And that's what they found. And, and so that, the, that means that the official explanation that we received from NIST, for example, in their, in their document of the, of the collapse of World Trade Center 7, is false. But we, we've known, you know, 9-11 researchers have known that it's false because they didn't even put in the, into their equation the possibility of explosives in Building 7 when people saw explosions going off there. There were explosions witnessed inside the building. But um, now we have it from an authoritative university, uh, an, engineering, an engineering study that's been done that, that directly challenges the authenticity or the, the correctness of the official story. This is very important because... Um, this means that, uh, you know, we've been lied to about what, what brought down Building 7. If we've been lied to about Building 7, we've, have we been told the truth about anything else about 9-11? No. But what we're finding is that this, this is not being amplified by the media, but it, it's, it's, it's going to get traction. It's going to be released in Berkeley in a couple of days, um, and it's going it's, it, to – hopefully more and more people will understand the uh, importance of, of, of getting the truth about what caused the, the collapses of these buildings. Because what they said about Building 7 is equally true of Buildings 1 and 2. The buildings would not have fallen as they fell if all the, the central columns had not been cut simultaneously. That's, that's quite a feat. And what has the commissioner of the Franklin Square and Munson Fire District, located near Queens, New York, had to say mm -hmm. regarding the events of September 11th? Oh, that's, that's a group... Um, in Long Island, just, just outside Queens, and it's the commissioners of that fire department, that fire district, they are calling for an investigation 
uh, a new investigation of what happened to the towers, towers one, two, and seven, and and they say that they're they're adamant that explosives explosives were used, and for them it's a personal issue because they lost firefighters that day, they lost friends, and these commissioners are elected people. So one of the commissioners is is Chris uh, Joya, um, but they're they're the elected commissioners in charge of the fire district, and so it's important in that that you here you have elected people calling for uh, an investigation. Government, the government officials of New York calling for a, a proper investigation into the use of explosives. And all this is coming together at a head this year. You have, you, have the, you have the grand jury petition, you know, already in the, in the, in the court for now over a year in the, in the district court of uh, Manhattan. We don't know the progress of that. We don't know how that's going. But then you have these uh, commissioners from Long Island calling for an investigation. Then you have the uh, Fairbanks study showing, proving that that the Building Seven could not have fallen the way they said. So it's like the government story is the government story or the media story is unraveling very quickly. And you know, for those of us who have been studying this for 18 years, like myself, this is not new new stuff. But it's it's encouraging because it means that um, finally. The, the, the waves are changing in our direction. Things are starting to go our way. Yes, with all these revelations coming forward this year, it is pretty amazing. It's like there's been a sort of a shift. Yes, yes, very much so. And, and you know, that's, that's the important thing. Like this uh, Fairbanks study is really important because it means that um, now the government... The government and the the officials behind the cover-up, they're on the defensive. They've been they're being proven wrong by experts, and so hopefully it'll hopefully it'll lead to more revelations coming forward because there's a whole lot of information. There's a lot of people that know a lot more um, that could certainly help hasten the day of this of this uh, revelation. Now you've just mentioned the cover-up. And I know that you've done an uh, enormous amount of work on the cover-up, the government cover-up, the media cover-up as well, of what occurred in this country on September 11th, 2001. What can you tell us about the cover-up? Yeah, yeah, well, the cover-up is, is, is essential um, because the, the, there's no way that the... You see, 9-11 was done for a reason. 9-11 was done in order to take us into the war on terror. They could not have achieved that. They could not have achieved the war on terror had they not succeeded in doing the cover-up and foisting a false story onto the event. A guy from, from the West Coast said this. This is uh, Peter Dale Scott. This is very appropriate. He said, I should make clear that with respect to 9-11, I have certain knowledge of only one fact— that there has been and continues to be a massive cover-up. That's it. And so the, 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 the cover-up is essential. And that's why it's so important. Like Richard Nixon said, it's not the, it's not the crime that gets you. It's the cover-up. Because in the covering up, the people doing the covering up are exposed. They can't hide like the, like the rats who put the thermite into the World Trade Center before, you know, before the days before the event. They are exposed, whether they're whether they're politicians, whether they're officials of the U.S. government, or whether they're media people. People who are involved in the cover-up of 9/11 for the past 18 years are known. 
why it's important to look at them, as I do, and investigate them is because anybody who's involved in the cover-up is basically complicit in the crime itself. And, and so that way, if you can find the network to which these people belong, and if, if, it, if, it, if it's the same network as the, as, as the suspects of the 9-11 crime, you've pretty much uh, figured out who did it. Who are a few of uh, the people who have been pivotal in the cover-up of the events of September 11th? Well, the, in my opinion, from a citizen's point of view, the, the main cover-up machine has been the media. So you have uh, Fox News, for example, and the other six companies that own the media in the United States, basically. Something like five or six corporations own like 90% of the media. New York Times is another one. And what these people have done is that they have, they have deceived the American people into believing a false story about 9-11 and then sold them a false narrative in order to get them to hate Muslims and go to war in the Middle East. And those people, I know the media has some sort of a caveat that they were able to get through in the Clinton administration or something, that the media does not have to tell the truth. But um, in terms, in, in, in this kind of crime we're talking about, this is treason. It's treasonous to, to uh, commit a crime or to support uh, the lies about a crime in order to deceive the nation into war. That's treasonous. So, um, as I said, we, we know who the people are, and there's, there's a bunch of them. There's, there's people in the, in the Bush, and Clinton administ- Bush administration, um, through the Obama administration, and even to the current day, people who are actively involved in promoting the lies of 9-11. Who were a couple, let's say, of uh, the government officials who actively participated in the cover-up? Well, number one would have to be um, in the Bush administration, um, a man named Michael Chertoff, who was with John Ashcroft, they were at the Department of Justice. Um, the way it worked is that uh, John Ashcroft gave the portfolio, or, or the portfolio for the 9-11 investigation fell into, fell into the hands of Michael Chertoff. And Michael Chertoff was supposed to investigate the crimes of 9-11. The FBI serves directly under him. Um, and he's, he was the assistant attorney general of the Department of uh, Justice under the criminal division, in the criminal division. And being a crime of terrorism, it was his obligation to investigate the crime. They pulled a, they pulled a fast one, though, by, by declaring on day one that 9-11 was an act of war. And by calling it an act of war, they basically precluded the necessity of having an investigation. They said, we were attacked. We were attacked by Arabs from Afghanistan, and off to where we go. Whereas that wasn't, that wasn't proven. That was not, it, wasn't, it wasn't something like Pearl Harbor, where you had Japanese planes attacking you know, Hawaii. In this case, you had, you had a false story that was given to the American people that was not proven, that was told to us, and, and that narrative was the, the narrative that took us to war at. That did not mean that it was truly an act of war. It was a crime and should have been investigated as a crime. And here is where Michael Chertoff dropped the ball. And so I would start with him. He happens to be an Israeli national as well. His mother was a Mossad, a Mossad agent, in the, one of the first Mossad agents in Israel. And he should be certainly um, charged with uh, crimes 
in allowing the evidence to be destroyed because that's that was essential you know destroying the evidence to to maintain the deception i'm speaking with investigative journalist and author christopher Boleyn. today's show exposing the 9-11 deception i'm bonnie faulkner this is guns and butter and did you find that uh, any parts of the American judiciary were involved in the cover-up? Well, yeah, the same the same district court in Manhattan where the grand jury petition has been sent. This is the U.S. District Court of Southern Manhattan, Southern New York. It's the Manhattan courthouse, and and this is where, where this is where all the 9/11 litigation went. Um, and one judge handled it, Alvin K. Hellerstein. So of the 3,000 families who were affected by 9-11, basically 2,900 took the government compensation right away when offered. There were about 100 families left, I think 96 families to be exact. These families held out for a day in court, and they were in the court of Alvin K. Hellerstein in, New- in Manhattan. But the case never went beyond procedural procedural motions so these people never got their day in court, and one by one, each family was settled out of court. So you have today, um, you know, in the most litigious country in the world, in the, in the worst crime in our history, not a single day in court for any of the victims. It's, it's a travesty of justice. An offshore military tribunal promises to have a trial for the mastermind of 9-11 on January 11th, 2021. Who is being accused of being the mastermind of 9-11? Yeah, well, that's the the man they call Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, KSM. And this is the man who is um, uh, blamed for being the mastermind. He's been waterboarded something like 183 times. But the, and he, and, and the process, the, the process in Cuba never goes anywhere. They've been changing judges left and right. And it's just been never gone anywhere. And this is the man that they will not bring to the United States to stand trial in New York. New York City under Bloomberg, Mayor Bloomberg said, no, we don't, we can't handle it. It's, it's too much. It's too dangerous. Better keep him in a, in a military, in a military setting. Why? I mean, because this wasn't a military attack on the United States, but the, the reason why they're keeping this college Sheikh Mohammed down there in Guantanamo, the reason why we never get any pictures of him or anything like that is because this is not really college Sheikh Mohammed. This is a man that they arrested in Pakistan from the Pakistani press reports and information from the from Pakistan is that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was killed one year after 9-11 on September 11, 2002. And what they did is they, they, they arrested this man later and brought him to Guantanamo eventually. And, and they, they declared him to be Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. This was part of a ploy. They wanted to kind of like keep this, this racket going. Um, so that they could collect more information and whatnot. But now they're stuck because the, the real college Sheikh Mohammed studied engineering, got a degree in engineering from North Carolina A&T. And I called up uh, one of his former professors and asked him, have you ever seen this uh, man in the picture that we're being told is college Sheikh Mohammed? And he said, I've never saw that face before in my life. So it, that's why they can't bring this KSM to the United States because He's not the real Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Another thing is, if you read the transcripts of the tribunal process, you'll see this man can barely speak English. He's been held by the U.S. for about 17 years now. He should 
have, have some English skills, but his English skills are not the skills of somebody who studied engineering at, in North Carolina. So I think that this is another part of the hoax. And, and I think that what they're planning to do or hoping to do is something like what happened with Epstein. The, the, the person will die in custody and there will be no trial. I don't know. Otherwise, there'll be some sort of trial, some sort of process down in Cuba, far from the far from the prying eyes of the media, and we'll be told that uh, he's going to be sentenced to death or something. I don't know. But it's not Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. I remember uh, this prisoner's arrest, and it, it's vague in my memory, but it seems to me that he had family members that were either present when he was arrested or knew of his arrest and publicly stated that he was not who the government was claiming that he was. Yeah, yes, yes. And, and it's, he was arrested in, in um, I think it was in, in Rawalpindi. Um, yes, and his, his relatives said it was not him. They said this is uh, Ahmed. He's a feeble-minded. He has some sort of mental, mental problem. And that he he was he was arrested at that house, and what the what what the what the American side did was they they tried to say that two people were arrested at this time, one was Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, and, and so it's, it's a little bit of trickery. But you know from from the distance they made it look like they really got Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, but the news reports from um, 2003 about the murder of, or about the uh, the killing of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed in Karachi are pretty pretty clear. Um, at that case, when they when they actually killed Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, or reportedly did so, they, they got his wife and child there too, and they were taken into U.S. custody. And the FBI decided they were they were quite upset that that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed had been killed, and they decided to make it look like he was still alive, to play this as as long as they could, and that's what they've done. And now it's like it's gone far beyond its expiration date, and it's not going to work. So they they have a real they have a real problem. But this is just to explain why these masterminds of 9-11 has not been brought to the United States. Because people might be wondering, why, why don't they just like take them from Cuba and bring them to New York and put them on trial? You know, why, why don't we clear this whole thing up? Well, with the whole 9-11 story, the reason that we can't clear things up is because you can't not clear up a lie. Certain lies cannot be cleared up at all. They just get exposed. And they don't want that to happen. Now, obviously the motivation behind the attacks of 9-11, it seems to me, was to kick off the 9-11 wars in the Middle East. What have the consequences of all of these wars been? Oh, it's it's outrageous. I mean, I just saw there's an article in New Republic about the dystopia that we have, that we we live in since 9-11. I mean, they they turned our world upside down. First of all, it's been the, the the war on terror is is not just a name. It's a program. It's a funded program. So if if the president decides to invade Iran tomorrow, based on their use of their 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 terrorist entity, uh, whatever, he could get funding from the war on terror and authorization from the war on terror program. It was passed shortly after 9/11, and it's now resulted in being America's longest and most expensive war. And on the domestic side, thousands of people have been killed. Many families have, have suffered from this. Um, but, you know, they, they've, they've turned our entire reality upside down, like at the airports. At the airports, 
you know, passengers are treated like suspects of terrorism. And, and it's like they put up with it. They put up with it. So what's, what's happened is it's, it's completely changed the relationship between the citizen and the state. So that now the citizen fears the state when it should be the other way around. Well, that's where we are. And, and, and it's not going to end until we end it. It, it. it requires citizen action to stop this stupid thing. Because the people behind it are going to milk it for everything they can. And as long as they can maintain control of the White House and Congress, then they control everything. They, they control the military. They control the media. And they will, continue, they will continue their war on terror to some bitter conclusion. Some, I don't know where it ends. But they obviously have their sights on, on Iran. And war with Iran would be catastrophic. And you see, every single day there's news about tension between the United States and Iran or Israel and Iran. Israel is clearly trying to provoke a, 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 you know, a war with Iran. They want to provoke it so that America winds up fighting it. We cannot let that happen. And, of course, uh, these wars have given rise domestically to this uh, surveillance state that we now live under and the, the Patriot Acts. Yes, and, and it, it just, it's gone from, from you know, anti-terrorism measures, it's gone much, much further. So now we're, we're living in a complete surveillance state. And what you find is, again, um, Ehud Barak, for example, involved in this, in this uh, uh, Israeli program to get more and more access to uh, and control of the surveillance state in America. The company that, that, that Epstein funded for Ehud Barak with some millions of dollars is a company that's supposed to be involved in 9-11 calls in America, you know, mass shootings, what have you, so that, the, that this, this Israeli company uh, uh, winds up collecting all the data associated with the event in real time. I mean, this is what, this is what they've been doing all along. This is, this is what the P-TECH story is about, which you, which you, invest, which you investigated with uh, Indira Singh. The, the whole P-TECH thing, it's, it's, it's having access to all the information from a network in real time. And what company were you referring to? Well, it was, it was, it was first called Reporty. Now it's called Carbine, C-A-R-B-Y-N-E. And it's uh, a company, an Israeli company, spawned out of um, Unit 8200, the Israeli NSA, if you will, the Signal Intelligence it's the biggest part of the Israeli military. And what they do is they create, they create software. They create some sort of software, and they put a, some, some trap doors in it. They put some Trojan horses in it and back doors in it. And then they sell it to you know, United States companies, the U.S. government. And this is what they've been doing for a long time, going back to what Promise Software in the, in the 1980s, was it? Um, you know, with Robert Maxwell. Again, you have the same characters involved. And this is Israeli military products that they, they develop in, in Israel, then they commercialize them and bring them to the world. They're dual-use technology. They serve one purpose, you know, that the user notices, but then they have back doors and, and other, other aspects that the user doesn't know about, in which they're being surveilled. Tell us about your new book that you have uh, coming out on September 11th. Yes, it's the second volume of original articles. So it's Solving 9-11, the original articles, volume two. And it's, it's the articles that I've written after the publication of the first Solving 9-11 book, um, original articles, in 2012. So it, it represents seven years of, 
of research articles um, that I've written from 2012 to 2019. And these articles in this in this book are unique because they're my research into certain aspects of 9-11 that are not being researched by by other people. Like, for example, Ari Fleischer. He's a very key person. Ari Fleischer in the in, in the George Bush administration. And uh, the head of the CIA, the executive director of the CIA um, on 9-11, a man named Krongard. Christopher Bolin, thank you. Thank you, Bonnie. It's been a pleasure. You're, you're a very good host. I've been speaking with Christopher Boleyn. Today's show has been Exposing the 9-11 Deception. Christopher Boleyn is an independent researcher, investigative journalist, and author. He has lived and traveled extensively throughout the world, including the Middle East, where he studied the region's history and languages before earning a degree in history from the University of California with an emphasis on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Along with research and writing, he has worked as an editor and translator. He is the author of Solving 9-11, The Deception That Changed the World, and Solving 9-11, The Articles. His newest book is Solving 9-11, The Articles, Volume 2. Visit his website at bolin.com. That's B-O-L-L-Y-N.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaramako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. Release. You dig me?